Hello, good one. Talk here, Kamlo Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up, we are calling on the New Zealand government to stay true to its commitments to a nuclear-free Pacific. New Zealand is being urged to take Japan to court over its plans to dump nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean. Also, but even if you combine the attack as it stands now, it is still below three degrees. Counting is well underway in Fiji, but provisional election results indicate a likely return of the ruling Fiji First Government. And later on... It's difficult for rental companies like ours because if they're returning their cars empty. The Cook Islands is out of petrol and some businesses are facing a total shutdown if no fuel arrives this weekend. The official count for the 2022 Fiji polls is now well underway and there are early signs incumbent Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama could lead his Fiji First Party to form a government for a third consecutive term. That's unless the numbers shift significantly towards its major rivals, the People's Alliance Party, the National Federation Party and Sedelpa, when the final results start to trickle in. For other smaller parties and independents, it's looking very unlikely any of them will reach the 5% threshold needed to get into Parliament. Joining me to talk more about some of the provisional results we have on hand is political commentator and academic Shailendra Singh, who's the head of the University of the South Pacific's journalism program. Nisam Bluvinaka, welcome on Pacific Waves, Dr. Singh. The much-anticipated polling day has now come and gone as we await the official results. What are some of the key points we can draw on? Uh, thank you, Guru. Yes, it, it has been an interesting election, not to mention a vital one. Counting, I believe, is ongoing, but most of the results are in. As of now, Fiji First, which is the ruling party, is the ruling is the leading party. The results, as far as the results that are in now, Fiji First is the leading party. An incumbent prime minister, Bainimarama, the country's most popular politician. Uh, so far, he has, this is Bainimarama, 32% of the total vote, and his closest rival, this is the former prime minister, Sidiveni Rambuka, has just over 16%. So you can see the gap is quite significant as of now. And this is after counting at nearly 60% of the polling stations. So, as of early this morning, Fiji First has 46% of the total votes, while the People's Alliance Party, which is Rambuka's party, has 33%. So, Fiji First is very close to the threshold to form government. Uh, not there yet, but very close to it. And people are saying uh, that Fiji First has virtually won this election. Uh, the key thing is, so far, if you look at the results that have been released, that is available as of now, uh, so far, Fiji First has not reached the majority threshold, which is 50% plus, right? It's close, too close to the threshold, but not quite there yet. Uh, once the results are fully counted, then we'll know. As I was saying, counting is ongoing, uh, but there are no, no more provisional, you cannot see any more provisional results. And uh, for Fiji First, I think the most important thing is that it attains the majority threshold, 50% plus, right? If not, what will happen is it will need a partner to form a multi-party government. But as I was saying, it is almost inevitable that Fiji First will form government. Uh, The third leading party is the National Federation Party, and they have scored just over 9% of the votes so far. Uh, the People's Alliance Party and the National Federation Party have a partnership. Uh, but even if you combine their tally 
as it stands now, it is still below Fiji First. Right? So we've got now we've got three parties in Parliament, Fiji First, People's Alliance, the National Federation Party. The fourth party that could end up in Parliament, once counting is complete, is the Social Democratic Liberal Party. At the last count, they were just short on the 5% threshold to enter Parliament. On Sunday, when the final results are announced, uh, then we will have more clarity and things might or might not change. Uh, one of the perplexing things about this election is the low voter turnout, right? This is the lowest voter turnout, just over 50%. This is the lowest voter turnout of all three elections held under the 20. 20- Constitution. And this is despite, you know, perfect weather, free transport, and multitude of polling stations. So this is one of the questions the parties will be asking themselves, as well as the Fiji Elections Office, as, as to why was the voter turnout so low compared to the two previous elections. Uh, by some of the commentaries I've been reading, the low voter turnout hit Sambuka and his People's Alliance Party the hardest. Now, all of, the, all of the figures, obviously, we're talking about here for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Fiji, uh, the provisional results that are released overnight, uh, the night of the close of polling. And now we're seeing on the, if you're following the Fiji Elections uh, Office app, the official count is starting to tick over, and that's the one that will come out on Sunday. Now, what are some of the likely scenarios with, with regards to a formation of government if, if, Fiji first aren't able to breach that 50% and form government alone? Uh, what you have said, Corey, is correct. I think we need to make that clarification. We are discussing provisional results, but they are quite telling so far. Now, it is very likely, it is highly likely that Fiji first will get the majority vote. Uh, if so, it forms government on its own because it's only about four, four percentage points away from the majority, uh, from the 50% threshold. Uh, so if it first gets the majority vote, it forms government on its own. Otherwise, it will have to govern in a coalition. And that's a new experience, a new experience because in its previous two terms, Fiji First ruled on its own. Uh, now, that's something Fiji First will be very keen to continue. Now, if Fiji First is unable to get the 50% threshold, unlikely as it may seem, uh, it will have to govern in a coalition. And that would be a new experience because in its previous two terms, Fiji First ruled on its own. The interesting thing is that both the National Federation Party and the People's Alliance, the only two other parties in Parliament uh, so far from the provisional results, they have said that they cannot work with Fiji First. So that leaves Sodelpa as the most likely partner for Fiji First. That is if they make the 5% threshold. Now, if indeed Sodelpa enters Parliament and joins it, would be a strange pairing. And this is because Fiji First stands for multiracialism and one nationhood. This is a major platform for their party. On the other hand, if you look at Sodelpa, uh, for them, indigenous rights come first and foremost. And this is the reason often Fiji First and Sodelpa, they don't see how do I in Parliament. And there is a major debate and disagreement in Parliament. In fact, Sodelpa has more in common with the People's Alliance, if not for major personal differences and animosities between the two parties. Uh, as you know, the People's Alliance is an offshoot of Sodelpa, formed by Lambuka and his breakaway group. And in its first election, 
the People's Alliance has replaced Shadelpa as the major indigenous body, indigenous region body. Right? They have garnered the most support, it would seem, amongst the indigenous population. Whereas Sodelpa, the second largest party in parliament, uh, the last election, is still struggling to get into parliament. Uh, the irony here is that these divisions in the opposition ranks and fragmentation of votes have played a major part in the 31st party win. Right? So even a common enemy was not enough to unite the opposition parties. Uh, at this late stage, the People's Alliance and the National Federation Party seem to have very slim chance of forming government, if any chance at all. It's unlikely they can, that they can match, let alone beat, the 51st talent. Given the issues that we've seen um, uh, with the uh, Fiji Elections app, which sparked some complaints now from the challenger parties to the incumbent government, um, and also given the, the, as you say, the mismatch between the perfect conditions for high voter turnout and the low voter turnout stats and the, and the perceptions, as you're saying, that the low voter turnout um, has hurt the challenger parties more. Is, is there, what, what are, I guess, the likelihood of instability off the back of the official results? Okay, so... Yeah, in fact, you know, you're right. There seems to be a major dispute over the results looming, and that would have some people concerned. Uh, Rambuka is up in arms because before the glitch, you know, there was a glitch in the uh, vote, 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 vote counting app. Before the glitch, the People's Alliance was leading. And uh, one of the unknown candidates, which was a bit strange, had secured a disproportionately high number of votes. And this is what alerted, I think, the Fiji Elections Office to something that might not be quite right in the app. Now, so they took the, the app down. Uh, in a press conference today, Rambuka said he would write to the Army commander and the president's office. Right, was he disputing the results before the app was brought down, before it was closed, uh, his People's Alliance Party was leading, as I was saying. Now, besides writing to the commander and the president's office, Rambuka also has the option of the court of disputed returns, right, which has, I think, a maximum of 21 days to reach a verdict. Uh, what he and the challenger parties need to do is produce evidence to prove their case. Okay, so that's all that can be said about the disputes of now, because, you know, the Fiji laws are quite strict on casting any kind of expression on the integrity of the electoral process. I really can't say anything more. I don't have the qualification. I know the evidence to come make more comments on this. Uh, with regards to any instability, right now, as I speak, everything is nice and calm. You know, everyone's going about their business in the normal way. And uh, we hope nothing happens to disturb the peace in Fiji. So far, everything is looking okay. Everything is looking good. So hopefully nothing untoward happens and uh, there'll be no major problems. Researchers and anti-nuclear campaigners from New Zealand, Pacific Nations and Japan are calling on the New Zealand government to take Japan to court over its plans to dump nuclear wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Otago University researcher Dr. Carly Birch told Lydia Lewis many people will be surprised to learn the Japanese government has approved Tokyo Electric Power Company discharging more than 1.3 million tonnes 
of treated radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Lydia Lewis asked Dr. Birch what is included in the call. The statement authors and signatories are calling for four resolutions. First, we are calling on TEPCO and the Japanese government to immediately end its plans to discharge radioactive wastewater from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. Second, we are calling on the New Zealand government to stay true to its commitments to a nuclear-free Pacific and to support other concerned Pacific governments by playing a leading role in taking a case to the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea against Japan concerning the proposed radioactive wastewater release. Third, we are seeking clarity from the Japanese government, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Henry Puna, the Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat and Pacific Ocean Commissioner, and the Pacific Panel of Independent Global Experts on Nuclear Issues on the outcomes of numerous meetings they have had about the radioactive wastewater discharge. And finally, we are calling for a transparent and accountable consultation process as called for by Japanese civil society groups, Pacific leaders, and regional organizations. This consultation would be between the Japanese government and its neighbors throughout the Pacific, and we want these consultation processes to be directed by impacted communities within Japan and throughout the Pacific to facilitate fair and open public deliberations and rigorous scientific debate. And who is on this group, and how did this group come about? Yes, so the working group formed during the Nuclear Connections Across Oceania Conference, which was held at the University of Otago at the end of November 2022. It includes an emerging collective of frontline community members, activists, legal experts, NGOs, and activists from uh, Japan and across the Pacific. And it includes frontline community members based in Fukushima and Miyagi, Japan, and members of Young Solwara Pacific, the Pacific Network on Globalization, or PANG, MISA for the Pacific, and other regional Pacific organizations who have been speaking out against this plan for many years with little to no response from TEPCO, the Japanese government, or other Pacific neighbors such as Aotearoa, New Zealand. Have you contacted the New Zealand government following this call? So we just released it this morning, but we are planning to share our statement with government officials here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Our plan is to first approach Minister of Foreign Affairs, Nanaya Mahuta, and MPs from the Labour Pacifica Caucus. And we are really hoping our message makes it all the way to the Prime Minister because we want the New Zealand government to be in solidarity with Pacific neighbours and to lead international legal action opposing the discharge of nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean. I've spoken recently with TEPCO via email and also a spokesperson for the government of Japan and their stance remains firm that this is not going to harm uh, Pacific nations, that their testing um, has concluded that the wastewater will be safe to their levels of safe. What is your res- your response to that? What is the science behind your call? So the statement is really pointing out that there has been a lack of rigorous scientific assessment and a lack of sufficient data to back up claims on the purported safety of the radioactive wastewater discharge Japan has not adequately considered other possible on-land storage methods, despite evidence from predictive models that radioactive particles released into the ocean will spread to the northern Pacific, and neither TEPCO nor the Japanese government have conducted a comprehensive environmental impact assessment on the potential effects of an approximately 30-year discharge of radioactive wastewater into the ocean. 
this lack of rigorous assessment is persisting even when independent experts have acknowledged that these safety claims are based on insufficient data, which is why we need the notes from these meetings to be released because we need more information on what they actually said. The plan continues to go ahead even though the Japanese government has known since at least August 2018 that the ALPS treated wastewater. So ALPS is the technology that TEPCO is using to to, uh, remove some of the radionuclides, as many as possible, from the wastewater. This wastewater contains long-lasting radionuclides such as iodine-129 in quantities exceeding government regulations even after treatment. And so iodine-129 is a long-lasting radionuclide which has a half-life of 16 million years, which means it could remain hazardous for up to 160 million years. Yet none of this has been addressed through rigorous impacts. Are you concerned that in this statement to RNZ Pacific, they have said that this water is up to safe standards? Yeah, I don't think there's enough evidence to make a claim such as that. Um, Firstly, most of the radionuclides that will be released in the wastewater discharge have been produced through the nuclear fission of uranium. In Japan, the radioactive wastewater is often referred to as, quote-unquote, treated water because it has gone through the ALPS system. However, this does not automatically mean that the water is free from uranium-derived radionuclides. It simply means the amount of measurable radionuclides are under a designated threshold limit. So safety means the uranium-derived radionuclides are under a threshold limit. If it is under a certain limit, how is this not safe? Yes. So in our statement, we link to an academic paper published by scientists in Japan who have shared the difficulty they have faced in trying to study the validity of these threshold limits. So they share how how they themselves as scientists have been accused of being unethical for questioning whether these threshold limits are reflecting the actual biological harms caused by eating, breathing, drinking, or living alongside uranium-derived radionuclides. So we're pointing out how it's a huge problem when scientists are being prevented from questioning the validity of these threshold limits, particularly when those limits are being used to argue for the safety of discharging nuclear waste into the ocean. Um, But secondly, I think there's a bigger question um, beyond the the scientific justification, which I've already pointed out. There's problems with the lack of data and rigorous assessment and the problem that we're not able to question these threshold limits. But there's a bigger question about whether science should be used as an excuse to perpetuate nuclear colonialism. Um, And so in the statement, we explain how if we understand nuclear colonialism to be the targeting of indigenous peoples, their lands and waters to maintain nuclear production processes, um, such as processes needed to maintain um, a nuclear power plant, such as Fukushima Daiichi. Um, Then TEPCO and the Japanese government's plans to discharge radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean against the will of Pacific peoples is an act of nuclear colonialism. Meanwhile, the Tokyo Electric Power Company and the government of Japan maintain that the ALPS treated water is safe. Embassy of Japan Wellington Deputy Head of Mission Nishioka Tatsushi says both Japan and the Pacific have common issues of nuclear tragedies. He says treated water is not contaminated because most of the radioactive material has been removed. And Pacific is in the process of securing an interview with TEPCO and a spokesperson for their response will bring you more on this story as it develops. The Cook Islands has run out of petrol. The next confirmed shipment of petrol is not due to arrive in Rarotonga until Sunday, leaving providers struggling with a lack of supply. 
Chamber of Commerce Chief Executive Rebecca Tavioni told the Cook Islands News the petrol shortage highlights a potential issue with wholesale reserves. Island Bike and Car Hire spokesperson Richard Vincent says most people will have fuel in their cars because of an advance warning that was given. As the country is heading into a low tourism season, he has much of his fleet parked in the yard. Well, the situation is that the islands run out of fuel, um, although probably most people have got some fuel in their vehicles because they got a little bit of advance notice. It's difficult for rental companies like ours because of people are returning their cars empty and um, we can't fill them up again. So there's a boat coming in on Friday which may or may not have fuel on it. I don't know everything, OK? I, I, I don't know much except what's reported in the news. So they're hoping there's some fuel on this boat, and if not, apparently there's a boat arriving on Sunday, which there is fuel on. That's my understanding of the situation. But, of course, we've got some pretty inclement weather up here. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of wind. Therefore, it's not unusual for boats not being able to get into the harbour um, we, in, in the past, we have had boats sitting out there for three weeks, so let's hope that that doesn't happen. For your own business and your day-to-day, are you just are you just cutting back on on things you're doing, are you? Or just using, do you have a diesel truck, I guess? Anyone with a diesel truck is probably um, um, sweet for now, but um, yeah, just tell us about your own, own situation and how you're impacted. Well, no, we don't have a truck, actually. We have a petrol truck. Uh, but and, and, of course, all our vehicles are petrol. Um, we haven't had diesel vehicles for quite a while now, for many years. So all our vehicles are petrol, and um, all that we're doing is, because it is the slow season, we've moved into the slow season now, we do have uh, a lot of our fleet of vehicles that are not being used, utilised. So that means that we are going through the the fleet that are parked up there to drag cars out or vehicles out that have got some fuel in them and hopefully we'll get through till next week in which case I'm hoping that we'll have some fuel on the island. After that it will be pretty dire. After that I guess our business will stop. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you Tomas and look at you for next time more.